Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. And of course, you can learn more about our firm at our website, lalaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss an important development in trademark law. Last year, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit in In Re Bowes overturned a prior holding of the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board in Medinol versus Norovasix, in which the TTAB held that a trademark applicant commits fraud in procuring a registration when it makes material misrepresentations of fact in its declaration, which it knows or should know to be false or misleading. The CAFC held that equating should have known with a subjective intent, had erroneously lowered the fraud standard to simple negligence, and they concluded that a trademark registration is obtained fraudulently only if the applicant or registrant knowingly makes a false material representation with the intent to deceive the USPTO. So why is the Bose decision important, and how has it affected trademark practice? Joining me today to discuss these and other questions is my guest and longtime colleague, John Welch. John is one of the country's leading trademark lawyers. He is a frequent author and speaker on a variety of trademark law issues. His annual quarterly review and annual review and top 10 trademark decision articles are must-reads for IP practitioners. He is a member of the board of editors of The Trademark Reporter, a contributing editor of Allen's Trademark Digest, and he is the founder and publisher of the TTAB blog, which can be found at www.ttablog.com. The TTAB blog was recently nominated as one of the top 10 IP blogs by the ABA. Welcome to IP Council, John. Thank you, Peter. So, John, why has the Bose decision uh, been caused such a stir in the trademark community? And, and basically, why is the Bose decision important? Well, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the Bose decision, let me just speak uh, more broadly. Um, the Bose decision is important because it deals with how a trademark owner and trademark lawyers must deal with the Patent and Trademark Office in obtaining and maintaining trademark registrations. Bose concerns uh, and, uh, the possibility uh, that false statements, even innocent and inadvertent false statements, uh, may jeopardize the validity of an application or registration. Now, of course, we have to start with the premise that applications and registrations of trademarks are important. Uh, they provide nationwide protection, constructive notice. They give the owner the right to use the registration symbol. So trademark registrations are valuable assets, and, and therefore um, obtaining them and maintaining them is important to a business. Uh, the Bose decision made the registration process less risky, and it made applications and registrations less subject to attack. 
because both rejected the uh, theory in the Metanol case that uh, fraud uh, is easily proven on the trademark office, um, a, a theory that had reigned from, nine, from 2003 to 2009 and caused quite a stir in the trademark community. Okay, so let's let's back up then. Um, uh, what was the state of the law of fraud before Bose? What was the Medinol case about? Well, Medinol came came down in 2003. It's a trademark trial and appeal board decision, and it concerned, as you said, a registration for the mark Neurovasics for two items: catheters and stents. Um, the owner of the registration filed a statement of use, a declaration of use, uh, verifying that the mark was in use on both of those items. When in fact the mark had never been used for stents. Now, when challenged, the owner claimed that uh, it had inadvertently included stents in the uh, identification of goods and had simply overlooked uh, that item. The board, uh, the trademark board, however, took a very stern view and said that the owner sh- knew or should have known that this statement was false. Uh, it pointed out that the verification or statement of use is a is a quote solemn close quote document and should be um, should be um, correct when filed, and therefore the board held, uh, based on uh, just that, uh, just those facts, that the registration was was invalid and void ab initio on the ground of fraud. Now, from 2003 to 2009, fraud became a favorite avenue of attack in TTAB proceedings because all one had to do to prove fraud was to show that the registrant or applicant had included in its use-based application goods for which its mark had not been in use. There was no need to show uh, the intent, the uh, subjective intent of the applicant. You just had to show the fact that goods were included for which the mark had not been used. I see. So, so the Bose decision was uh, of, that, of that kind, well, well, the both, facts of Bose were, were of that kind. Well, I wouldn't say that. I think the Bose facts were a lot more complicated, uh, and which made uh, uh, made made the decision more understandable. Uh, unlike uh, Metanol, where there were only two items of goods, and it was clear that the mark had not been used on one of them, the issue in Bose was much more of a mixed question of law and facts. It was a much murkier issue. Uh, in Bose... Uh, the Bose company had obtained a registration for the mark WAVE for many electronic goods, including tape recorders. Uh, and when it came time to renew the registration, Bose filed its verification saying the mark was in use in all, on all the goods, when in fact it had several years before stopped making audio recorders. Now, when that registration was challenged on the ground of fraud, uh, Bose and its general counsel came in and said it was an innocent mistake that the uh, general counsel signed the document knowing that uh, Bose had, in fact, been repairing used goods sent to them from the owner and returning them to the owner. And the general counsel stated that he thought that was legitimate use of the mark in commerce, which uh, justified the renewal. Now, the the CAFC said, well, that was a false statement. It was legally false. But it was an innocent statement because the general counsel, in good faith, believed that he was correct. And so, and because there was no bad intent, the uh, the Bose court, the Court of Appeals, threw out the fraud claim. And in doing so, it uh, it indicated that Metanol was incorrect, 
that the standard, as you said, in metanol of new or should have known was too low a standard because it encompassed uh, mere negligence. And uh, the court said that much more is required for fraud. There must be a real uh, bad intent on the part of the party involved, and that bad intent has to be shown by real evidence, whether circumstantial or otherwise. So the um, the Bose decision simply knocked the props out from uh, under six years of TTAB jurisprudence um, and uh, took us back to square one on the issue of fraud. In fact, uh, after Bose, it's not clear yet what set of facts will uh, will be found to constitute fraud. Uh, the TTAB has yet to find fraud in any case in the last 15 months since Bose came down. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that because I know there have been uh, it remains it remains in um, uh, an issue and and uh, parties are still raising it. So what does it mean uh, the, the Bose decision and the and the uh, recent aftermath? What does it mean for trademark practitioners and applicants as as well as the USPTO? Well, I think for practitioners and applicants, they can breathe a little bit of sigh a little sigh of relief because they no longer have to fear that even innocent and inadvertent mistakes in applications and registrations will result in a fraud finding and and a and a uh, evisceration of their applications or registrations. Um, I think it does uh, uh, does behoove owners and applicants to go through their registration portfolio and application portfolio and perform what I called at one time a fraud it and try to see if there are any incorrect statements of uh, of goods, uh, any overly broad statements of goods that can be corrected because even though innocent error and inadvertence uh, may well now uh, be enough to shield the owner from a fraud claim, the sooner you make the correction, the more innocent you look. So I think there there's two thoughts to keep in mind. One is that inadvertence will only take you so far. If you have an, a list of goods that includes 30 items and you've only used the mark on one out of 30, your claim of inadvertence uh, may not carry the day. Likewise, if you have a registration that's been on the books for years and it contains an erroneous identification of goods, uh, the longer you wait, uh, the less innocent you look. So I think, uh, as I say, although practitioners and owners can can uh, feel a little bit more comfortable after the Bose decision, that doesn't mean they should just sit on their hands and not uh, take the steps necessary to uh, correct any mistakes. John, in listening to you, what comes to mind are, are foreign-based foreign applicants, which, uh, uh, as, as you know, often claim all goods in a particular class. And, and when the foreign applicant enters the United States for a trademark or with a trademark application, that, that often is recited as literally all the goods in that particular class. So, for instance, in class 25 for, for clothing, they may itemize uh, uh, shoes and socks and pants and shirts and scarves and ties and hats and just go on and on and on, uh, where their their use may be a, a narrow subsection of that class. How, how does that type of uh, foreign applicant uh, understand and apply with what we've learned from Bose? Well, I, I think uh, we have to... Now, we're talking about use-based applications, not not foreign applications that come in under Section 44 with no use claim. We can talk about that kind of problem too, but when a foreign applicant comes in with a use-based application with a long laundry list of goods, of course, one's eyebrows are raised and 
uh, one would want to question whether they actually have used the mark on all those goods. Now, uh, what the difficulty that comes up in the TTAB is the availability of discovery from foreign applicants is limited. You, you, it's almost impossible to get a deposition out of a foreign applicant. You usually have to, in fact, the trademark rules require that you use uh, depositions on written questions. So when you're trying to prove fraud and you're trying to figure out what the facts are and what the intent of the applicant was, it's very difficult to do when you have a foreign adversary and your hands are tied in discovery. So I think fraud uh, vis-a-vis foreign use-based applications is, I think, virtually a dead duck. Now, another interesting question that arises out of foreign applications, and we're sort of changing direction here, is when a foreign application comes in with a long laundry list of goods and it's based on Section 44 or 66 and does not have a claim of use. It's just based on convention, uh, on a convention uh, reference or uh, filing. Um, Every 44 and 66 application, even if based solely on the foreign registration or application, must include a Section 1B, a statement of a bona fide intent to use the mark in commerce. So where foreign, uh, many foreign applications and registrations are in jeopardy is with regard to this claim of bona fide intent in the United States. I think many foreign applicants have no understanding of U.S. trademark law and our use-based system and the importance of a bona fide intent to use the mark. Uh, They come in and blithely sign and file these applications, and I believe many of them are subject to challenge on the ground of uh, lack of bona fide intent. So if you see a foreign application, I've seen some that are 10 pages long and have list every item under the sun, and they're based on intent to use. Um, One has to wonder whether there really is a bona fide intent involved. So uh, the law is starting to develop in the in, in that area of in that area. Uh, a number of trademark cases recently uh, at the board have required uh, initially that the applicant or registrant show some documentation to establish that it indeed has a bona fide intent to use the mark in the United States. Uh, the board asks for sample labels, um, business plans, uh, attempts to license, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think this bona fide intent issue is going to open up a Pandora's box vis-a-vis foreign trademark owners who seem to be totally unaware of uh, the stringent, what appears to be relatively stringent requirement of U.S. law that you'd be able to back up your claim of bona fide intent. Might we might we say as well for U.S.-based applicants in uh, an intent-to-use uh, well, context? Uh, it certainly does apply to U.S.-based applicants, but uh, typically U.S. applicants have shorter lists of goods and are more aware, and, and their attorneys are more aware of the requirements uh, of, of a real bona fide intent to use the mark. That doesn't mean that uh, in, in many cases you can ask whether there indeed is any documentation to back up the bona fide intent that's claimed even by U.S. applicants. And uh, as I say, I think the bona fide intent issue is one that's going to be uh, increasingly uh, uh, ventilated at the TTAB as more and more parties bring up this issue. So so that a um, even for U.S. applicants, uh, the, the issue of bona fide intent or lack thereof as an element to prove a fraud case may, as, as I thought you heard, uh, had said, uh, become an element uh, moving forward to look out for? Well, I, I think you have to keep the two separate. I think fraud and bona, lack of bona fide intent are separate. I, in fact, 
uh, it's easier to prove a lack of bona fide intent because you don't have to show bad intent. I mean, uh, the application be, can be filed in good faith, innocently, and still fall, run afoul of the lack of bona fide intent. Okay. That was uh, that was the case in a, in a board decision that just came down a couple of days ago, where the uh, yeah, the applicant who claimed that a lack of bona fide intent is like like a fraud claim and has to be pleaded with particularity and have to show bad faith, and the board said no, it's not like fraud in that regard. Lack of bona fide intent does not require bad faith, so it's easier to prove a lack of bona fide intent than to prove fraud because of the high requirement to prove bad intent. The What's interesting also is the the remedy or the result of a lack of bona fide intent is different than the remedy or result of fraud. If a registration or application is deemed invalid uh, on the ground of fraud, the whole registration or at least the class of goods involved uh, that that are involved in the fraud, that whole class is wiped out of the registration. And if it's a one-class registration, as in Mednol, the whole registration goes down. In the bona fide intent side, the remedy is less stringent, perhaps because the proof is less stringent. But in any case, if you prove uh, a lack of bona fide intent, say in the Medinol case, uh, lack of bona fide intent as to one of the two goods, it only knocks out that one good and the registration stays alive as to the other. So I think you have to keep separate to a large extent, fraud and bona fide intent. Now that I'm putting aside the question of whether one's claim of a bona fide intent can in and itself be fraud, but let's put that aside for the time being. There's no case on that point. Okay. Well, what about the, uh, I'm getting a a sense that a party can always claim innocence and therefore avoid fraud. Is that, is that as simple as that? Well, I think the claim of innocence is, will, will probably go a long way, if not all the way, to avoiding a summary judgment finding. Whether uh, innocence will necessarily in, win the day in every case remains to be seen. For example, the case there is a case pending before the board now, and the board did decide some of the procedural issues, but it's a foreign company that has a registration covering 30 items of alcoholic beverages, and the evidence appears to show that they've only used the mark on one of the 30 items. So uh, it, it remains to be seen how far the claim of innocence or inadvertence will will take that registrant in, in defending against the fraud claim. Now, one of the questions left, perhaps the biggest question left open by both is what exactly is the standard now? All right, let me hold you there, John. We need to take a short break. And uh, when we return more with uh, John Welch. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by John Welch, and we are discussing trademark fraud after the Bose decision. John, when we left off... 
um, you were just beginning to speak about what is the fraud standard now. Maybe we can pick that up from there. Very good. Uh, well, we actually don't know exactly what the standard is because both left us kind of in the dark uh, as to what what the standard is going forward. Um, what the Bose case makes clear is that negligence isn't enough, which is what the Metanol case was all about. Uh, the Bose decision also relied on patent infringement case law to say that even gross negligence isn't enough. Now, uh, practitioners think that the next level up of badness, which is reckless disregard for the truth, may be enough. And certainly, if you can show actual intent to deceive the Patent and Trademark Office, that clearly is enough to prove fraud. But that will be the rare case indeed. So the real question is whether reckless disregard for the truth will be enough to satisfy the fraud requirements. Now. Um, as I say, the, the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board has yet to find uh, fraud in any case. In, uh, in one case, it mentioned in a footnote that the question of whether reckless disregard for the truth is enough is still an open question. Uh, what I find interesting is how one draws the distinction between gross negligence and reckless disregard for the truth. Um, I, can, I can envision advising a client that hey, Joe, it's okay to admit you are grossly negligent, just don't admit you are reckless. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that gets sorted out. Uh, some people think that reckless disregard for the truth has to be, en has to be enough for fraud because it's just uh, very difficult to imagine a case where you can actually prove the bad intent of the other side because they're the ones who have the facts and they're not going to give those to you. Uh, although I did hear one very well-respected trademark expert say recently that he thought reckless disregard might not be enough. Whatever it is, the standard is going to be a very high one, and fraud is going to be very hard to prove. Well, this this strikes me as a uh, um, as well as a trademark practitioner, as a patent practitioner, I, I I find this difficult to square because there's there's such concern over uh, fraud um, and um, misbehavior on the patent side of the practice. Uh, can you just distinguish the two? Um, you touched well, on it a little bit there. Uh, well, I, I hesitate to uh, opine on what. The, the standard is for inequitable conduct on the patent side because I don't consider myself a patent expert. I'm a patent lawyer, but not an expert. Uh, I think what's interesting is the, uh, the, the, the comparison between what happens on the patent side and what happens on the trademark side and uh, question why the CAFC thought it should use patent case law to determine what the standard is on the trademark side. From my point of view, on the trademark side, Materiality in these cases uh, is is quite easy to prove. In Metanol, there were two items. Metanol, uh, rather, Neurovasix hadn't used the mark on one of the two. It wouldn't have gotten the registration for both items if it had told the truth. QED, the the false statement was material. Since it's easy to prove uh, fraud on the on the trademark side, as opposed to the patent side. Perhaps the standard for proving fraud should be lower. Let me let me explain a little further. On the patent side, when you have a question of inequitable conduct, it often revolves around whether a particular piece of prior art is relevant and should have been revealed to the examiner. The examiner. Now, the question of whether a piece of prior art is relevant is a is a much more complicated question regarding materiality than the simple question of the metanol case, yes or no. 
So because the question of materiality is so much more difficult to figure out on the, on the patent side, it seems to me you should give more leeway to the patent prosecutor or the patent attorney who is supposed to make this decision as to whether to disclose the prior art to the PTO. Since it's a difficult decision, I think the, the fraud standard on the patent side or the inequitable conduct standard should be higher before you nail that practitioner for inequitable conduct. But for some reason, the CAFC has decided I think in part because of a lack of understanding of trademark prosecution, which is evident in the in the Bose decision itself, uh, they they nonetheless decided that they were going to equate the two standards and and raise the uh, the fraud standard on the patent on the trademark side uh, up high. Well, thank you for that. I'd, I'd like to just go back and um, pick up a little bit on on where we left off a, a little bit ago. And um, something came to mind. Would trademark owners be safer if they filed intent-to-use applications rather than use-based applications? Well, I think they'd be safer in the sense that it would give them a little bit more time before they file their statement of use to get the registration. I get, get them a little bit more time to think about it and get it right. I think sometimes applications are filed a little hastily, and when you file them based on use, uh, it's possible to make a mistake in, in your haste to get it on file. Whereas if you filed intent-to-use applications, then uh, you know it would be months before you had to file your, your, your uh, statement of use after you got a notice of allowance. Now, keeping in mind that uh, on, uh, under the bona fide intent standard, you have to have a bona fide intent anyway, at least to use to file the ITU application. But yeah, I think it would be better, to tell you the truth, for owners to um, to file based on intent to use, just because it gives gives them more time to work with their attorney and get the statement of use right. That's that's my thinking. I may be totally off the wall, but okay. So so now now just uh, going forward, to when when fraud comes up, is it is it after some uh, discovery uh, and you um, as a someone bringing the matter, uh, recognize in, in discovery that maybe dates or identification of goods, um, something doesn't match up and you've, you've discovered some evidence that perhaps there was a material misstatement in the application. Um, is, is that, or, or does it come right out? Is that the normal course of um, the allegation of fraud? I think it's usually the appropriate course. I'm not sure it's the normal course. In other words, when, when because of the pleading requirements of Rule 11 of the federal rules, you're supposed to have a good faith basis for making uh, making any allegation or any claim in a complaint, and particularly fraud where, where the uh, Rule 9b pleading requirements require specificity. That doesn't mean people all, all, always do that. Uh, they'll make uh, off-the-wall fraud claims. I've, I've faced a couple recently in their initial pleading, uh, primarily because I don't think they understand what the law is now on fraud and, and the pleading requirements for fraud. But um, in, in answer to your question, I think that's the way it should happen uh, in most cases where you take discovery, you ask the other side for evidence uh, of use of its mark on all its goods and see what you get. And when they can't produce evidence of use on all the goods, then you have then the bell goes off and you know you have a material false statement. So at least you have the first step towards a fraud claim. I see. I see. So so how does one respond to an allegation of fraud? Well, I think uh, I put a posting on my blog today about just that topic. And I, I said that the obvious uh, response is, one, the statement wasn't false. And two, even if it was false, it was innocent. So I think if you can raise some issue about whether the statement is false, whether what you characterized, 
what the other side characterized as one of the items and the idea is actually what you are selling it just under a different name, things like that, raise factual questions about whether you actually did use the mark on the goods. And if you can't do that, then I think you fall on, fall back on the second prong, and that is it was innocent, we made a mistake, it was inadvertent. What you should also do is, as soon as you can, correct the error, file an amendment uh, to your registration or an amendment to the application if you can, move to amend if you're already involved in a proceeding. So I think there, I think you have to move quickly when you're uh, accused of fraud uh, to, to correct any false statements that were made, but keeping in mind that those, I think, are the two main defenses that it really wasn't false, or at least there's a question of fact as to whether it was false, and two, in any case, it was innocent. I see. Would would one accompany um, the correction uh, with a declaration, or just proceed with the the correction? Well, I, I think it depends on you know these things often come up during a during a proceeding, during an inter-parties proceeding, an opposition or cancellation, where the other side. It takes discovery, and then you you realize when they've asked the question, you realize, oh, gee, we don't have proof of this uh, abuse on all the goods. I think at that point, if you're involved in a proceeding, you can't amend the application of registration without the board's approval or the other side's consent, and they're not going to give it. So you have to. I think the thing to do is file a motion to amend, and at least it shows your intention to correct the problem and helps your argument about innocence. Okay. Um, if you if you happen to find it out on your own, say you conduct a quote fraud at close quote of your trademark portfolio, then I think the think the thing to do is to file the necessary amendments right away. You can amend the registration to delete goods. You can amend an application that's pending, typically, uh, unless it's in the blackout period. But so there are things you can do um, either way. Okay. I noticed the uh, the the fraud it the coin term there the fraud audit um, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, would you uh, what would you recommend for practitioners um, trademark owners um, kind of go through their portfolio and make sure that the mark is still used on the goods that are identified? Well, I think the case law, at least the pre Bose case law, said that if you you don't have to amend a registration simply because you stopped using the mark on one of the goods, as long as when the registration issued, the mark was used on all the goods. In other words, if you drop a product from the line and it falls within a registration's identification of goods, you don't have to immediately fix it. You can wait till the declaration of use comes up or the renewal comes up. So if it issued properly and it issued with a correct identification of goods, you can wait to the renewal or the Section 8 declaration time. It's the cases where you realize that the registration issued with uh, an overbroad identification of goods and included things in there when it issued for which the mark hadn't been used. Then you have to move right away. Very good. And um, just finally, I'd like to ask, uh, what would you like to see implemented by the uh, Patent, Office, Patent and Trademark Office to, to add some clarity to the, uh, to the issue? Well, I, I, I've been uh, advocating without... With some success, I've had a few, little bit of interest from practitioners and the trademark office of the idea of requiring that an applicant who files a use-based application include a specimen of use for every item in the identification of goods. I think in the old days where specimens came in on paper, uh, it would have been uh, a little bit more troublesome. But today with uh, the uh, ubiquity of the digital camera, I think it's not that difficult for uh, a, a trademark applicant to include a specimen of use for each item of good goods in the in the identification. I think the trademark office all could also could relax a little bit 
the uh, acceptability of catalogs as specimens of use for all the items in the catalog. So if you had 20 items in your catalog and the mark appeared on the front of the catalog, that would suffice for all 20. Um, now, I think the Patent and Trademark Examining Corps is not too thrilled with that uh, suggestion because it means more work for them. But I think up front, it would, uh, it would solve some of the problem. The other thing that's been, I've heard proposed is to move up the requirement for the declaration of use from five years to three years. Uh, I'm not sure how, how that would necessarily help uh, if, you, if, you, if you didn't require a specimen of use for everything in the, rather in the registration. Now, on the intent to use side, uh, I'm not sure what the answer is and how, how you would solve that problem up front, but at least on the use-based application side, I think there's at least a prospect of requiring more specimens. Okay. And that about does it for this edition of IP Council. Remember, you can find all our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. A very special thanks to my guest, John Welch, for joining me today. John, how can folks reach you for more information on this topic? Well, they can always send me an email at jwelch at lalaw.com. And of course, you can contact me at lalaw.com or email me directly at plando at lalaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, talking law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.